Thank you for listening to this artist talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, Tim Silver explains his work on display in Versus Rodan, Bodies Across Space and Time. This exhibition is showing until the 2nd of July, 2017. Thank you. Um, it's very exciting to meet Tim in person because, um, you know, when you admire and follow an artist's work for many years and also see them appear um, in many different um, sculptures as he is um, the stand-in, as he calls himself, for, um, for, his, for his models, um, it's, it's a delight to, to actually meet him in person and with the rest of his body um, as well, I guess. <laughs> bits of it, bits of it. Um, but um, Tim, um, Tim's work you may remember from uh, a couple of Biennale, uh, biennials ago, um, uh, Parallel Collisions, which was curated by Alexi Glass and Natasha Bullock. Um, and I guess they embodied some of the central um, ideas or things that you're constantly negotiating around um, material decay, entropy, and material stability, instability, and how those things are, um, I guess, um, how, how they find themselves in different um, forms. Um, and I actually came across um, one of the, the works, um, uh, Honor of Frenia. Anirafrenia. Anira Anira he did prep me on this. <laughs> Terrible student. Um, um, and um, we have one of uh, these works from uh, the related series. It was in an exhibition at CCP, um, the Centre for um, Photography in Melbourne, and it was actually initiated as a, a photographic series um, in which Tim had uh, made a plaster cast of his own head and inside it had, um, uh, um, well, basically there was bread which when it baked it, um, it exploded um, the, the, the head and these were captured in a series of seven photographs? Eight? Uh, 19. 19. <laughs> Whoops. We're, they, they weren't all there though, were they? They're not all those. Hmm. Anyway, I remember seven really well, and um, but uh, I and I was like, oh, I really want those in the exhibition. The sort of you know at the time I was reading way too much about Rodin's fragmented body and the exploded body and um, you know mind-body dualities and and um, those are just you know such resonant works. So. It's really a pleasure that, uh, well, it's a great, <laughs> I, I was very excited when I found out that he'd gone into, decided um, to cast these actually in a pigmented concrete. So let's, um, let's unpack these a little bit and talk about these. <laughs> there's, uh, there's so much to talk about in this exhibition, really. Um, I mean, it was kind of interesting. As I was uh, flying down from Sydney on Thursday, I, uh, I was rereading uh, Rosalind Krauss's The Originality of the Avant-Garde and Other Myths. And that essay, which was produced in the early, early to mid-90s, uh, triggered this extraordinary exchange with the then director of the National Gallery in Washington uh, about the legacy of, of, of Rodin and, and where those works sort of sit because indeed, as a lot of the ones in, in here uh, are, are produced posthumously. And, and I guess what's interesting, and I, I, this, this was an important text to me as a student at art school, and it was kind of where I got introduced to Rodin and sort of started to consider him. 
in, in a different way and perhaps what his legacy might be, which to me is really in, in terms of his means of production, um, because he really had quite an ambivalent relationship to it in, in, in this idea of uh, uh, originality or the hand of the artist. And um, I, I find those things really, really fascinating, I guess, because as a, and I don't really consider myself a sculptor because I'm a caster, and I work a lot with materialities that transform or decay, and I document that process as a photographer. And, and both of those, those techniques are the lifting of the surface of one thing and applying it to another. And so in many ways, I describe myself as a copier rather than a creator. And uh, it, it's sort of an interesting way in, in, in which you work and, and, and the way that these, these artists sort of uh, provide, provide a legacy for these things. And I think Rodin was particularly interesting because he was kind of considered a bit kitsch in his day. Um, you yeah. know, and we have a very different contextual relationship to looking at it now, Kitsch and, itself. And his, and his legacy to, you know, to use a, a pun is being constantly recast, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, throughout, uh, through, uh, throughout history and we're doing it again right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and certainly to even consider that Kitsch back in the like, late 1890s meant a very different thing mm. to what it means yeah. today. Yeah. Um, so, so I find those sort of the contextual inf insights uh, really fascinating. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I, I, I guess I'm primarily a caster. I work with a, a mold-making technique. Um, and so I, I, I utilize that project, I guess, in taking things that already exist in the world and, and I guess juxtaposing them with a new materiality, which of course does then create a new, a new work or a new insight or something new uh, that hasn't been revealed before. But the process itself is, I mean, it's obviously quite labor-intensive. Um, but, it, but it's interesting, even if we, if we look at that sort of process, it's interesting that as you remove the mould in some way, shape or form, it's almost like a, a process of excavation and the work reveals, it's not created, it reveals itself to you. And so with, with a work like this, Oneirophrenia, um, and Oneirophrenia refers to a sort of hallucinatory dreamlike state, you know, and, and I guess, I'd, and, and it's interesting to note that the title came after the works, you know, it was attributed to the works rather than, you know, sometimes you have a title and you make a work to that, but in this case it was the opposite. And I'd, I'd, I'd sort of made these very temporal uh, ephemeral works, which were, which I'd always conceived of existing in the world as a photographic typology. And they were sort of of these plaster busts, much like you see now um, here, uh, the same form, uh, but they were the white plaster. And I'd, I'd been looking at how ways in which I could rupture this very classical form. And I, 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 through, through, I, I view the studio as a laboratory of sorts, and you sort of play an experiment in there, and things happen unexpectedly sometimes. And after a number of a series of experiments, I. I'd been working with another project that was sort of utilising bread, and I realised that bread would probably rupture these plaster skins in, 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 a, in, a, in a way that I thought would be hopefully be interesting. And so I created these forms, and they were quite compelling, and I knew I'd be able to do my photographic typology out of them, but there was something about the forms themselves in this very ephemeral sort of material as bread, which I knew we couldn't really get to, you know, we could retard the sort of... Uh, uh, decomposition of it, but not prevented. Um, and so, 
there was something so fascinating about them as they existed in their three-dimensionality that I really wanted to do that. It became a very interesting process of not trying to mimic what they were in their ephemeral state, but somehow taking that transference somewhere else. So they, they resided elsewhere, other than what they were or what they originally, uh, uh, how they originally came into being in the world. And so they, you know, they sort of claimed their own typology yeah. as a different typology. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but, uh, you know, uh, it is a rupturing of um, the classical bust, which is also why I, you know, um, you know, this, uh, you know the, the, this work and, well, works from this series were a real um, centrepiece in thinking about this room or thinking through ruptured subjectivity, identity, Cartesian duality, the split between the body and the mind, and, and I guess it, it sort of visualises something which is, um, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, the rupturing of legacies, but also um, uh, the rupturing of, of self. So um, it does, it, you know, they, it performs that, um, but also keeps it static. So there's, um, there's you know, this, uh, it's, you know, the, such an incredible series of work. And we have another one of your works in this gallery mm -hmm. here, yeah. um, which if um, people want to pivot. <laughs> Lisa's kindly pointing it out. <laughs> So can you tell us, did this come before or after or if you... Uh, the work Lisa was just pointing out is, is called Trouble with Lycan, um, which is actually the title of a science fiction story, um, which is, is quite amazing about the, I, I guess, that age-old uh, desire to preserve youth and live forever. Ever. And it's strange we talk about legacies and as artists and particularly I, I work at... I guess the, the origins of where I start from is often in some ephemeral materiality. Now, as you can see here, the works don't necessarily end up in an ephemeral form, but it's often the starting sort of point at looking at things. Um, and trouble with Laika, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a, a, a one-liner joke because I sourced that rock over many, many weeks. <laughs> um, and it was particularly to do with the lichen uh, that was, was, was covering that rock as, was sort of why I felt it and it appealed to me. Of course, once they cast it, you can't really tell, you know? So all this effort went into something that Finding isn't exactly actually visible. exactly the right lichen-covered rock. Yeah, 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 and it's not actually visible in the, in the finished artwork. Um, uh, I, I guess, I mean, it's interesting that you were attracted to that rock because, I mean, in many ways, it's a very classical sculptural piece in that it's sort of looking at Feels form and gravity, and gravity and weight and mass, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly why. <laughs> no, but it's, but it, no, but it, it is true, and you know, there's also, there, but there's a sense of uh, finality about it, but then a, a sort of a real sort of marking. Um, but in doing that, um, it is a marking and putting, mark, it is quite a, literally, it is, yeah. it is. So mm. it's a punctuation mark, but it also, yeah, the um, the shape of it, but also in doing it, it, it stakes a claim, but also um, breaks the mould, um, I guess, mm, or, mm. well, it doesn't break the mould, to be technical, it breaks the <laughs> form, mm, yeah. Mm. I think I, I don't really have anything to add to that, Lee, yeah, you're you speaking can, you on can, my behalf. You can, you can take that as a comment, <laughs> yeah, from the crowd, um, so, <laughs> um, so perhaps, uh, 
we can just keep going backwards and forwards. I'll just talk about your work and <laughs> how much I love it. And, um, but uh, maybe we should open up to some other questions from the crowd. Sure. Yeah. Lisa Slade in the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess I started working uh, with that sort of pale blue, which is obviously a boy's blue, um, uh, from, a, from a very iconic work by one of my idols who's just around the corner, Felix Gonzalez Torres. Now, he worked in this uh, light blue quite often, uh, particularly most iconically in a work called Loverboy, which was one of his paper stacks, and it was just a paper stack of these pale blue sheets. Now, he obviously, in talking, in discussing this blue, he acknowledged that it was, it obviously was, had gender connotations to it. Um, but also, it was like a blank canvas. It was a blue that was the colour of the ocean. It was the colour of the sky. And therefore, it became a sort of blank canvas where the audience could project their fantasies onto. And I was speaking to Lee just this morning about the way that I sort of, I guess, tend to work in a monochromatic sort of way. And it, in, in that sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, block-like nature of the monochrome or the monochromatic form, it becomes this space where people can project their own associations and fantasies on. And I, I guess with the, the, the trouble of shifting it from these ephemeral sculptures into a form, I was trying these sort of very bold primary colours and it really wasn't working at all. Um, but, but what, what, what tended... You said you first tested with a, a sort of red red. Yeah, pigment. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like a really, really bright... I mean, I, I was sort of... I mean, I was testing out many materials, but sort of then, I, you know, I guess as a sort of uh, process arrested, uh, the idea of concrete and its associations uh, with concrete poetry and what it means in architecture uh, became quite, quite appealing. Um, and... and you're kind of limited with the, the, the range. Uh, you need an iron oxide to pigment concrete, and, and the range is usually those earthy sort of colours. Um, uh, and I was trying a red, you know, which was like a deep desert red, you know, and, you know, it, 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 it <laughs> was very kitchen, very, you know, garden sculpture-esque in a way. And, and, it, and so that obviously wasn't right. But from beyond that, you know, just from recycling moulds and trying things out over and over again, I, what the sort of casting process lends it to, even though in an economic model things end up as a limited edition, in the studio, I mean, you're producing masses of these things um, uh, because, you know, you can and you're working through, that's how you work through things. Um, and so then when I recast one of, well, I was trying to flush out the mould with plaster and somehow the, because the pigments are quite strong to mix with uh, uh, concrete and that have absorbed themselves into the silicon rubber of the mould and then reprinted themselves into the, the plaster which I was just flushing out. And so then I thought, well, if it's happening with plaster, it will happen with concrete. And it creates this really nice blotchy sort of thing which just took it, to somewhere that, that, that sort of resonated with me a bit more. And I, and I guess the idea of, uh, there was one set of these which was done with a red pigmentation and then a second set that was done with the blue and, and those colours were obviously, I mean, in looking at the body and looking at blood and red and blue of the, the coming in and the going out. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Do we have any other questions?
Or are you, is your head so full it's about to burst? <laughs> Perhaps. I think um, we've covered a lot of ground, and yeah. it was great to go back to Rosalind Krauss. I was wondering if anyone was going to bring that up. <laughs> so, um, you know, it uh, takes us through so many different, different histories and different stories. Um, yep. Mm. <laughs> I would never choose my own. Um, look, I have to say, and quite ironically, it's the second time in as many years I've been placed in close proximity to Mark Manders, um, and that's very special. Last year I had a presentation of, of, of the, the red series of these works in uh, Art Basel Hong Kong, and the stand across from me was a Belgian gallery that had uh, an exclusive stand of Mark Manders, which was kind of both intimidating and, and nice, but it's nice to to be in close proximity to Mark again, you know. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, they, they really do sort of speak to each other. Um, well, maybe yours just speaks, I don't know. If can, <laughs> don't know if he can hear it. I think he's got any ears, but... Um, um, I mean, I guess, I, I guess acknowledging, I mean, Mike's one of the greats of Australian art, and so actually you kind of have to acknowledge what's going on here as well. And um, Mike is a very generous, person, also Sydney-based, um, so I've had, had, had been fortunate enough to have many interactions, and I, I, I love the logic of thinking about these sort of works as being automated sketches that he has to perform in a, like, he tries to keep it under a minute, or otherwise he's thinking about things too much, and I, I think that's an interesting process too, about the way we work and how we, I mean, when I was baking these, these breadheads, as they were known at that that time before I titled them, <laughs> um, and I had to hire a massive industrial oven, um, and you know they, they were actually surprisingly expensive to hire. Um, and so they'd, they'd give me this special rate where they'd drop it off on the Friday and pick it up on the Monday, and I'd do a day rate, and um, I'd just be baking for like 48, 72 hours nonstop to do these because there's a very high failure rate, you know. For Which each... is very performative uh, yeah, as well yeah. and quite phys physically, in, you know, there's an endurance to, to that as well. But for each batch that you do, I mean, maybe I'd get 20 out of, you know, but perhaps 70 that yeah. I did, like some of them, their forms just fall off or whatever. And, and as much as these are random mutations, uh, there's also some guidance going on. You know where to make plaster yeah. thicker, yeah. so the weaker points of the bread, blood, you know, coming yeah. out. Yeah. But it, it, it's also interesting in relation to Mike's thing, because yeah. sometimes you started to overthink things, and so sometimes having a few beers and relaxing along the way could really loosen you up yeah. so you weren't yeah. thinking so much about it. Yeah. So, so it became much more intuitive and back to what you know best. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we have... Uh, oh. Yes. Uh, no. So, I mean, with these ones in particular, they're all unique in the way they were single-use usage moulds, which means they're not two-part moulds. Like, essentially, you get one shot at it. You only get one pour, so it's not like the traditional two-part moulding or a reuse mould. Um, so you pour it, and then literally to get it out, it's, it's this idea of excavating. So you're actually cutting the mould away and destroying it as the object's coming out. Mm. So it's a bit like a monotype. 
<laughs> That's why you like but it. These are, these are nice things to play with, particularly when you're working with multiples and additions, the idea of sort of turning them into unique objects, even though it's using that, that technology or, or whatever. I mean, there's nice plays to go in there when you sort of, you know, as, as you well know. <laughs> Well, you could make a new mould of that. I mean, much like the way that, you know, Rodin's plasters have become the bronzes, you know? I mean, you can make a mould of, of this and redo it in whichever one, if that's what you chose to do. Great. Well, I think we've covered the, you know, extraordinary series of stories around casting and the process <laughs> and recasting of uh, your own head and um, Rodin's legacy. So I think um, we've come full circle and, um, and also reached the um, end of the day. So I'd just like to say thank you so much um, right now to Tim Silver. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming and being so generous. And thank you to all the artists that have spoken today. And thank you to all of you. What a phenomenal audience who, you know, clearly want more, you know, so. What stamina. <laughs> yeah, what stamina, what endurance. Performance artists in your own right. Um, <laughs> I will hand you over to Lisa to conclude any Thanks, housekeeping. Lee. Thanks, Lee. Nothing more to say except tell everybody, come back and see the show again and again and again. And thank you for your support. Have a wonderful afternoon. Cheers. <laughs>